Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. This week, we have another guest co-host, and it's my very good friend, Don Calloway. Don is the CEO of Pine Street Strategies, a sought-after Democratic strategist from mayoral to presidential campaigns, and a frequent presence on MSNBC. In 2008, he and I were both elected to the Missouri House of Representatives, he from St. Lewis and me from Kansas City, and he had the distinct displeasure of being my roommate in Jefferson City and remains one of my closest friends. Uh, in addition to being incredibly smart, Don always has fresh and original takes and ideas, so I just really enjoy talking to him. So it made all the sense in the world to have him on the pod as one of our first guest co-hosts. So Don, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me, man. I just want to make it very, very clear to your audience who I respect to lower your expectations substantially. Uh, for the next 60 minutes. That's a great way to start. I, I love it. Always going with disclaimers. Don, be confident, man. I had you on here because I call you sometimes just to hear what you have to say about stuff because it's usually hilarious. You so, also have no pressure. an incredibly corny sense of humor, man. So I just happened, we happened to gel, but you got a smart listening base. I don't mean that you're not smart, but you know, you like me. <laughs> like, so, you know, I have a friendly audience with you, but I'll see what I can do here today. These people are conditioned for dad jokes. We're going to be fine. Don, Ravi usually starts us off with the biggest news in the country each week. Ravi, what do you got for us? So over the past few days, as Americans have mourned the loss of civil rights legend John Lewis, President Trump and his administration have ramped up use of federal agents against protesters in Portland, Oregon, where federal agents have clashed nightly with demonstrators and made arrests from unmarked cars. A growing number of demonstrators being tear-gassed by federal authorities, sent in by President Trump and managed by Homeland Security. Militarized, anonymous, apparently autonomous, camouflaged, pseudo-secret police in unmarked vehicles. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. Unmarked vehicles driving into crowds, pulling people off the streets without any probable cause, as far as I can tell. And the people who are engaging in those activities aren't even willing to identify who they are and they don't wear insignia on their uniforms. That's a real threat to democracy. Uh, calling the unrest there worse than Afghanistan. I'll just jump in here, Ravi, and say that uh, I would like to, you know, as the resident expert, say, having not been to Portland, Oregon, I'm still 
pretty certain it is not, in fact, worse than Afghanistan. I had a feeling you have something to say about that. <laughs> and his Trump's rhetoric escalated tensions with Democratic mayors and governors who have criticized the presence of federal agents on the U.S. streets. And he told reporters at the White House that he would send forces into jurisdictions with or without the co- cooperation of their elected leaders. And he said, we're looking at Chicago, too. We're looking at New York. Uh, he said, uh, quote, all run by very liberal Democrats, all run really by the radical left. Uh, three Department of Homeland Security officials said Monday that the agency has been making preparations to deploy agents from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to Chicago, but the officials said operational details are not yet finalized. And on Sunday, the president tweeted the following, quote, the radical left Democrats who totally control Biden will destroy our country as we know it. And the, the president also wrote, unimaginably bad things would happen to America. Look at Portland, where the polls are just fine with 50 days of anarchy. We sent in help. Look at New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. No exclamation point. Guys, before we get into the politics of this, let's just talk about the substance. Is this our next national crisis? And what kind of leadership do we need right now? I mean, every day in this administration has been different levels of scary, you know, like with the uh, when the Bush administration had the various shades of taupe on the terror threat alert. Right. So for me and for a lot of other folks, every day in this administration has had some level of existential fear. This Portland thing to me, I mean, this feels like some end of day shit. I mean, this is way up there. If I'm walking down the street and as, as we say in the hood, the jump out boys can come and just grab you and me without even understanding all the Fourth Amendment implications and the actual reasoning of why the president is saying that he can do this. This feels like the ice raids of two years ago on everyday citizens that can just be weaponized any given moment. And that's some very, very scary prospects for anybody who you know, these authoritarian figures deem, quote unquote, leftist, right? It's a great point that there seems to be a tendency right now in the Twitterverse and in the news to make this a debate over what qualifies as fascism. And the truth is, like, it really doesn't matter what you call this. It just looks frightening. Yeah, I agree. And I think one question I think, you know, for your Uncle Sal or whatever is, you know, when when we think about the implications of this for the president is for those of us who don't live in Portland and have a hard time even understanding what's going on and, and why things are escalating is a simple question that I think most Americans can answer, which is, is Trump making this situation worse or better? When he puts New York on the list, for example, my hometown, there's not a person in the city, Republican, Democrat, independent, who thinks that Trump's presence in this debate uh, or the presence of federal troops in unmarked cars is going to make our city any safer or calm down any of the tensions within our city. And I think we know the president's playbook here. So he showed his hand seven days ago when he put out an ad that it was called uh, Biden's America. And it said, you won't be safe in Biden's America. And it showed tons of images of protesters. You could guess the race of most of the protesters clashing with police. The radical left-wing mob's agenda? Take over our cities, defund the police, pressure more towns to follow, and Joe Biden stands with them. Violent crime exploding, innocent children fatally shot. And what I found interesting is that he calls the ad Biden's America, but that's that's the America today. That's Trump's America. Trump's America is divided. Trump's America is unsafe. Trump's America is escalating. 
Well, the footage is like, it's literal recent B-roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's like that old, um, you know, adage uh, that that we've seen reprinted multiple places. It's like when they came for the Muslims, I didn't stand up. And when they came for the next group and the next group. um, And this is like, you know, when they came for the kids in cages, I didn't say anything. When they uh, came for, as I mentioned before, just ordinary people, show me your papers. I didn't say anything. But that type of stuff going unchecked really doesn't end. Um, and it certainly doesn't end until, you know, certain amount of folks get mad that now it affects you in your real life. And, you know, if it affects New York City, then, you know, maybe good and decent folks, you know, just rage out against this president once and for all. It's amazing to me, by the way, just that like all the Second Amendment folks who are like, the government is big and it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> they look at this and they go like, yeah, this is fine. What's the problem? I mean, this is the stuff that like Rick Perry uh, and, and all the deep, deep red state legit, like Republican governors. This is what they said Obama was going to do, you know, and yeah. it was not based in any type of reason or logic or anything like that. But it was fear mongering. And this is precisely what they said is the worst that could happen with a Democratic president. He will come into your house, snatch your people for disagreeing with him, take your guns. This is that, you know. Yeah. And I we've talked a little bit about Ben Shapiro in previous pods and he had a tweet and I'll quote it for everybody here. He says, fascism is not federal law enforcement enforcing the law against rioters and looters. Fascism is the Chinese government shuttling Uyghurs by train to concentration camps. So there's so much that's interesting in this tweet. Uh, first of all, what is this notion that that Democrats somehow are like love China and love the authoritarianism of China? I don't know a single person who defends China in my circles. Do you guys sit around like quoting uh, communist China propaganda and defending their authoritarianism? I actually think that a lot of these people just think that because most of the people who play in the NBA are black, that they're all Democrats, and therefore that because there's an NBA China controversy, that the Democrats and China are this. I mean, it's pretty weird logic, but I I think that's how they got there. You know, I I just when I read that tweet, I just thought, you know, Ben, this probably made a lot more sense in your head than it did, you know, <laughs> in real life. I hate to pull back the curtain, but I spent all morning thinking about how do you address that tweet? Because y'all sent it to me before and I just, I got nothing. What I can add at the moment is from the Negro brunch circuit, China is not a standing topic from week to week. So <laughs> that's all I got. Well, to round this out, I'll say a couple things. There are many things happening in China that are horrific. And I know tons of Democrats who point that out. Um, I love to talk about it. I think it's it's a moral crisis. I think it's particularly sad that our country is so weak right now that we can't actually exert ourselves into international relations in a way that could actually help solve these things because we're a laughing stock of the world right now because we can't even get COVID under control, which I think is the way to end this conversation, which is to say whenever Uncle Sal around the table brings up stuff like this or Trump tries to change the subject, they're trying to change the subject uh, and escalate things so that we're talking about this. We're talking about the protests in Portland. We're talking about China, and we're not talking about this president's failed response to the coronavirus crisis. And I think that's going to be our every week conversation from here through November. Yeah, just to underline that, like what you said a little earlier, Ravi is completely right, that every single thing he does, uh, Trump does, and most of the Republicans do at this point, is about further dividing the country because they've 
come to the conclusion that their win strategy is if we're really divided and more of their people show up, then they win. And so that's what this is all about. You know, at this point in the course of a general election, as campaign guys, we notice historically, both parties are running to the center. And if not running to the center, at least you're trying to expand your base. And I've seen nothing that this president has done over the start of this calendar year or even going back to last year when the campaign mindset starts to kick in that shows that he's trying to expand his base whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he's doubling and tripling down on his base, you know, the the true like 30 percent, the deplorables who we're not talking to when we're talking about how to talk to your family or friends about this type of stuff. Right. So what worries me is kind of what you just alluded to, Jason, for a guy who's not trying to expand his base and has the world's biggest platform to do so. To me, that means cheating is baked into the strategy, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're not trying to add votes, you're not trying to keep us from talking to certain people then you're probably counting on a substantial amount of voter suppression coming into play here. And that has been, as we know, part of the Republican playbook for at least 10 years now. But now I'm seeing it for the first time actively worked into a campaign strategy. And that bothers me a lot. Yeah, it's divide people, get your people excited, and then subtract people from the other side. Yeah. And shout out to Dan Pfeiffer, who's done a lot of good work on this. He, he pointed out that you know, if you want to know the Trump strategy, you look at where they're putting their money. And part of their strategy is trying to put some distance between the African-American community and Biden by running ads about things like the crime bill, et cetera. What I'm puzzled by is that that strategy somehow coexists with these other ads about Biden being anti-police. So I'm like, which of these two arguments are you trying to make? All right. We have a segment that we call Quarantine Corner. And Don, this is where we share something from our week, whether it's a book we read, a movie or a show we watched, a personal win, et cetera. Jason, why don't you start us off? What do you have for this week? Well, so we usually do these as either highlights or lowlights. And I've been doing exclusively highlights, but I thought this week we'll do a lowlight. Personally, I've my screen time has been like out of control during during quarantine, during COVID. And I had a real wake-up call yesterday when uh, there was finally live baseball on TV. So True and I were sitting there watching it, and we were just really blissed out watching baseball on TV. And True turns to me and says, Dad, I love it when we watch baseball because you talk to me the whole time and you never look at your phone. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I was like, oh, man. It was a real wake-up call for me. So I'm going to try and really cut down on the screen time. What's your strategy? Do you have any strategy to cut down? Uh, shame so far it's just like <laughs> so far I just every time I'm looking at my phone around my son I feel immense shame and, and in the last 24 hours that's worked good, pretty well good 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 Don what do you have All for right, us Don you're up I've rediscovered the jump rope um fantastic full body workout feels a little juvenile but at the same time somewhat fulfilling it is more fast twitch than just getting out there and running, of course, which is a huge part of what's keeping me sane and alive these days. But do a thousand jump ropes, jump rope reps a day and, and you'll feel much better. You'll feel a full body workout. And because I don't want to go too far down the path of sounding like a fifth grader who took the president's physical achievement test, I'm going to stop this discussion right here. All right, Ravi, Ravi, you're up. Now, I'm going to recommend a movie. I'll be quick today. There's a movie called The Half of It by Alice Wu. It's on Netflix. Amazing, amazing film. It is kind of a romantic comedy, kind of a coming-of-age story. It's brilliant. Uh, And Alice Wu, if you ever look her up, she's amazing. And she's 
she wrote a movie 15 years ago, and this is her second movie. She took 15 years in between her two movies, and her, her life story is really fascinating. The movie seems partly based on her life story. I can't recommend it enough. I just said, Don, write it down. I did. I did. Listen, yeah. so little known secret, I'm a rom-com guy. Like, miss me with all the lethal weapon, all of that. Listen, What's your favorite Notting rom-com? Notting Hill and some skinny pop, bro. Oh, Notting Hill's my favorite, right. too. Notting Hill me is too. beautiful. All day. That's a good all movie. Day. Love Actually <laughs> is the greatest movie of all time as far as I'm concerned. Listen, I'm, Diana, Notting Hill Diana is makes now so much fun me. of me. Yeah. <laughs> no, Diana listen. makes fun of me because I love Notting Hill because I cry during Notting Hill. She makes fun of me. Yeah, I don't I cry, feel so much man, better. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the first third of that movie is, is A+. All right. Well, we have a segment that we call This Week in Misinformation. And this is where we bring to the table one meme, article, ad, or talking point from Republicans. And then we dissect it to tell the audience a little bit about how they can respond to it. Jason, what do we have this week? So President Trump has decided to bring back the daily coronavirus briefings. And he attributed his decision to revive them not to the increasing threat of the virus, but to the fact that the briefings had high television ratings. So this is basically like the McRib is pretty much what's happening. Uh, in, in an interview on Fox News Sunday, he said, I was doing them and we had a lot of people watching, record numbers watching in the history of cable television, which I just love the fact that he qualified it with cable television. Anyway, uh, and then he, he finished, there's never, like anybody needs me to add that he finished with, there's never been anything like it. Uh, anyway, that's that's not the misinformation. That's just poor leadership. The misinformation came in his first of the revived briefings Tuesday night. Well, thank you very much and good afternoon. Today I want to provide an update on our response uh, the president claimed to have data that put the United States in a better position to defeat the virus than other countries dealing with the pandemic. And at one point, he repeated the false claim that the United States has a lower fatality rate than, quote, almost anywhere else in the world, end quote. The president also claimed, quote, no governor needs anything right now, end quote. Ravi, can you walk us through what makes this misinformation? Well, I think what's important to note on the outset is that the stakes here are very high, which is why we're talking about this this week. Even though it seems like we're, we keep coming back to this point, the president is, he's taking in water. And as long as the American people believe that he's botching this coronavirus response, uh, he is in very difficult political waters. And so he's trying to reframe this by saying there really isn't a problem. But unlike other issues, this is widespread. It affects basically everybody in this country, and it, people are seeing it with their own eyes. So it's really hard to tell people that what they're seeing isn't true. I think the easiest way to counter this is to just share the Chris Wallace Fox News interview from this weekend. And I and I, I it's weird to be recommending Fox News here, but given the source of it that it's Fox News, Chris Wallace expertly dissected this and and dismantled the president's arguments right in front of him. And I think it it took a lot of courage and organization and precision for him to do what he did. But we have more tests by far than any country in the world. But sir, testing is up 37 percent. Well, that's 30, good. I understand. Cases are up 194 percent. It isn't just the testing has gone up. It's that the virus has spread. The positivity rate has increased. There, many the, the of virus those is cases, worse than it was. Many of those cases are young people that would heal in a day. They have the sniffles and we put it down as a test. 
And so, you know, one of the things that Wallace did in that interview was push back with on the president just with data and would not let him go. So Chris Wallace pointed out that the United States, in fact, does not have, you know, among the lowest mortality rates, and we have the 10th highest per capita death rate. In addition to all of that, this claim that states aren't asking for help, there are two things going on. Number one is there are just some states who've given up trying to expect things from the federal government. But even with that, there are governors like Governor Kate Brown of Oregon, who told PBS Monday that she needs help with um, uh, testing supplies and equipment. And Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, who warned of testing shortages earlier on Tuesday. So this is there are many lies here, but the president is desperately trying to uh, reframe this debate that there isn't a problem. But it's I think it's a near impossibility here. You know, that that kind of speaks to one of the um, <clears throat> advantages of the incumbency. Uh, and we run campaigns in a lot of different places. And even when the executive is really, really bad, they have this incredible ability to rehabilitate themselves over the last 30, 60, 90 days of a campaign. And I see the president bringing back the coronavirus briefings as a campaign strategy tool to do that, to appear presidential, to be, you know, to have some gravitas every day. But that said, he's so prone to misinformation. He's so prone to self-aggrandizement that he's going to ruin this opportunity he has to rehabilitate himself, even if it's just for show over the final leg of this campaign. I, I mean, I see this as a, a time-honored campaign tool, but I think he's too dumb to use it appropriately. It's a great point that there's a real risk here that, two risks. One, that he's going to put out, like he did before with these briefings, a lot of information that's not correct, which is what causes people to go out and not take the proper measures. I'm pleased to see, I don't even say pleased, I'm relieved to see that in the first briefing he actually talked about people wearing a mask. It only took, I don't know, how many hundreds of thousands of deaths and that kind of thing, but... But he did it. That's good. But on, So that's a risk that he doesn't continue to do that. But then on the other hand, it is a risk politically, right? Because I do think when he was doing this before that even as crazy and circus-like as it was, he appeared to be engaged and he appeared to be in control. And so I think the thing to talk about with your family, no matter what he says out there is, yeah, but why is he not working with the science? Why is he not letting the experts take the lead here? And why does he need to speak at every single briefing? To that point, I think what you say to Uncle Sal, since apparently that's that's the member we're rolling with for this show, right? I think what you say- Ravi's from, Ravi's from Staten Island. I, I, think, that, well, I think that's I, why. I, I like Sal because it could be my Italian uh, friends in Staten Island, or it could be an Indian, like Sal Khan. Uh, so I, I like to think of Sal as, as many, many, many ethnicities. I like it. I think you tell Uncle Sal, hey, man, remember that President Bush awarded Anthony Fauci with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. If it not the Medal of Freedom, it was really, really high honor that I will never see around my neck. Right. So this Fauci, you have to let him lead. He's not a political guy. He's not trying to make your president look bad, Uncle Sal. I promise. Let the experts do what they know to do. And right now, Fauci is the expert. Burks is the expert. But let's let them do what they need to do. And I don't need to hear from the president who has a political interest here. You know, I think everybody has probably experienced what I've experienced, which is in your personal orbit, whether it be family or, or your social circle, it is very frustrating and unnerving at how people based on their different news sources have different ideas about what they're supposed to do. 
And and I think that causes everybody a lot of stress. I think the fact that he hasn't been out there saying this is the one thing and it's what all the scientists agree on is why like one part of my family might think one thing about masks, another part might think something else. People may think different things about whether you can get together with what amount of people at one time. And it's a real problem. And it just would be nice if we all were working off the same sheet of music. Yeah, I think it's it's worth remembering, and it feels like an eternity ago, but just a week or two ago, the president's people were circulating opposition research against Dr. Fauci. Uh, so part of the reason why he's not letting Fauci, who, by the way, also said that he found out when we all did that the briefings were coming back, which is great. One of the reasons why Fauci isn't taking center stage is because we have a egotistical president who cannot share the spotlight with anybody, including experts, and has gone even beyond that to try to discredit his own experts because they have the nerve to conflict him with actual science. And Fauci, to his credit, is is the Time or World Magazine, whatever. He's the man of the year, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, this is a guy who most of our egos would have allowed us to quit by now because we just would not have been able to accept the anywhere from neutering at best to outright insults every day at worst. But uh, I've even heard him say, hey, you know, the work is too important that I can't leave right now, you know. But certainly if he did leave, he should be Joe Biden's first hire on day one, right? We want to tell you about a new show that we think you should all check out. Now, personally, as the founder of Let America Vote, this is something that's close to my heart. A hundred years ago, the 19th Amendment protecting women's constitutional right to vote was ratified. But American women's battle for the ballot began long before then, and it continues to this day. On She Votes, a new podcast from Wonder Media Network, award-winning journalists Lynn Schur and Ellen Goodman unravel the complex history of the women's suffrage movement. From the unintended limits of the 19th Amendment to the return of voter suppression, She Votes shares a historical narrative that carries profound relevance today. As we exercise our right to vote in another landmark election year, travel back in time with She Votes to understand the long and continued fight for women's place at the ballot box. Listen and subscribe to She Votes wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Majority 54 is brought to you by Helix Mattresses. For those of you who've been listening to Majority 54 over the past few weeks, you could probably tell I'm a little neurotic, and I uh, often have a hard time sleeping because I'm thinking about all sorts of things happening in the world. But... Uh, a few weeks ago, Helix sent me a quiz, uh, and I filled it out. They sent me a brand new mattress called the Queen Midnight Lux, which was specifically to my preferences. And ever since I got that mattress, I've been sleeping like a baby. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com majority54. That's helixsleep.com majority54. Today's show is also brought to you by Simply Safe. I want to tell you a quick story. So we have this, and we have some security cameras inside our house. And I remember during the Super Bowl, my brother was over, and he looked up and he saw one of the cameras. And he turned to my wife and he said, so you have security cameras, what for? And my wife said, oh, I just like to watch stuff. I'm going to watch this later. 
and and I just thought that was hilarious. Here's the thing about home security companies. Most trap you with high prices, tricky contracts, and lousy customer support. So while there's a lot of options out there, there's only one no-brainer, and that's Simply Safe. Simply Safe's got everything you need to protect your home with none of the drawbacks of traditional home security. It's got a toolkit of sensors and cameras to blanket every room, window, and door tailored specifically for your home. You can set it up yourself in under an hour. You just peel and stick the sensors exactly where you need them. There's no technician required, and there's no contract, no pushy sales guys, no hidden fees, no fine print. All this starts at $15 a month. And by the way, the fact that you can do it yourself during a time of COVID and quarantine seems pretty perfect. I'm not the only one who thinks that Simply Safe is great. U.S. News and World Report named it the best overall home security of 2020. And by the way, it's spelled with an I, not a Y. So it's S I M P L I S A F E, Simply Safe. So it's Simply Safe. Dot com slash majority 54 you get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial there's nothing to lose that's simplysafe.com slash majority 54 all right well we have a segment we call unsolicited campaign advice and uh don this is where we bring to the table uh advice for campaigns up and down the ballot uh what do you have for us so my primary advice particularly to democrats is run for office. And I can break that down. Here's why. Jason and I came into the game in 2008. As soon as we arrived in Jefferson City at the state legislature, we saw what everybody saw is that in January 2009 was the birth of the Tea Party movement. And the Tea Party movement was kind of a a legitimized white collar face for some really nasty elements of humanity. And For better or worse, in the two-party system that we exist in, that Tea Party element, those kind of lecherous elements, found a home electorally in the Republican Party. So you fast forward over the course of the last 10 years, right? The first element, the first election in which the Tea Party was a real factor was 2010. So now we've got 10 years of this, of their growth and their metastasizing within one half of our electoral system. And so what that means is that there are good and decent church going folks who are Republicans who have had to modulate, who have had to uh, capitulate to these really nasty elements in their party. And if you're a Democrat, even the most reasonable, even the most moderate, even the most good guy Republican has a whole lot of crazy that they got to reckon with. Right. Because they've been in the game for the last 10 years having to accept and having to welcome Um, I won't even just pick on the Tea Party, but having to welcome straight up white supremacists, right, or anti-globalists, right? And these people have said some really abhorrent things, and they've held the stage, they've held the microphones, they've held positions with the most reasonable of Republicans who have not rejected them and said, no, we don't want you here. You don't have a home, not only in our party, but in American politics. And you have Democrats because you have had the audacity to put your name on the ballot and contest every seat, every cycle, every election, now you have a substantial amount of crazy that you can legitimately make a case against. So my position, or excuse me, my unsolicited campaign advice, particularly to Democrats, is run, run aggressively, because A, not only lightning can strike and you'll be in fighting position, but B, you have a legitimate history of crazy to run against. We also have a uh, series of segments where we give awards out to folks. And 
This is uh, this is exciting to come back to this, Jason. Uh, and we'll start with the the Lindsey Graham Total Submissile and Capitulation Award. Jason, who are we going to recognize? I'm so excited, Ravi. It happened. We knew it would, but I am pleased to announce that Lindsey Graham is going to finally win his namesake award. Now, I'm going to read a tweet that earned him this award. I, I, I do have to admit that this tweet is actually from 11 days ago, but we didn't give out awards last week, and we just didn't want old Lindsey to miss his opportunity. So, so Senator Graham decided to take a, a bold and, and strong position in defense of, of Roger Stone, and, and in particular, in the defense of President Trump's decision to commute the sentence. His tweet said this. It said, in my view, it would be justified if President Donald Trump decided to commute Roger Stone's prison sentence. Mr. Stone is in his 70s, and this was a nonviolent first-time offense. End of tweet. Now, before I kick it to y'all, my view here is that this is Lindsey Graham really threading the needle. I think he's thinking, look, I gotta, because he's pushed back a little bit on Trump on a couple of things here lately, and he's like, I can't, that's not sustainable. I can't keep doing that. I gotta find something that I know he's going to do and that voters in my state don't care about. And they know that, he knows, voters in South Carolina are not making their decisions based on what happens with Roger Stone. Like, the whole Russia conspiracy, Trump corruption thing, it's horrible, and it's a Tom Clancy novel that's been taking place before our eyes, but it's not a thing that moves persuadable voters a lot. So Lindsey Graham's like, I can do this, consequence-free, and then go back to trying to run my general election strategy. Uh, I, I think that's what he was doing. Yeah, and I think what's important here is each one of these corruption scandals alone isn't going to take down the president or change people's minds, but I think the pattern of behavior is relevant. And, it, and people may not even remember what Roger Stone did, but it's important to remind people Roger Stone was convicted of lying to Congress, and he wasn't just lying to Congress about anything. The judge in the case determined that the intent of the lying was to cover up for the very president who commuted his sentence. And so uh, the, this is a conspiracy in plain sight. Uh, and if you go back and look at what President Trump was saying about all of this, he sounded like a mafia don. He was talking about how basically like he was calling out snitches <laughs> and basically Stone is being rewarded here for not snitching. I think most people could recognize that this is embarrassing for our country and very harmful to the rule of law. If you're talking to Uncle Sal, I think it's right. It's like, listen, the presidential pardoning power is something that, of course, we know is there and we don't agree with. We don't we don't disagree that he has the absolute power to do this. But this is the first time that I know, I don't know who Franklin Pierce pardoned, right? But this is the first time in modern history that we can say a guy is being pardoned for covering up crimes involving the president. And that's, it's important when talking to family this Thanksgiving, I guess the election is over by then, but uh, maybe if you have like a pre-Kwanzaa celebration in October, it's important to tell your people, no, because 8% of brothers voted for Donald Trump and they need to be called out. And, and, and I see you, Kwame, you know who you are. I'm just saying, like, that guy needs to be told that commutations usually don't happen for covering up crimes involving the president. Well, with that, Jason, I think we have a new award to give out this mm -hmm. week. We do. We got this new award to roll out, and we're going to call it the Uncomfortable Tryhard Award. And this is going to go to a politician who was desperate to be a part of the conversation, but should just have said nothing. And uh, our inaugural winner uh, is no stranger to the pod. Uh, it's Marco Rubio, uh, who tweeted uh, an in-memoriam tweet 
about John Lewis. Uh, the problem was uh, the photo attached to that tweet was not John Lewis. It was, it was Elijah Cummings. Now, I don't want to be juvenile here, so we don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but I think it's important to point out that uh, we now have a few awards here at Majority 54, and uh, I think we're, we have now a, a, a series of awards that rivals what they call the EGOT, so the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Rubio now has punched his card twice, so he's halfway there to the Majority 54 EGOT. He's the equivalent, guys, of like the Lin-Manuel Miranda of Majority 54 right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to say I'm Bakari Sellers. It's been great to be with you guys. I look forward to <laughs> I look forward to joining you guys many more times and sharing this platform. I- I've enjoyed hosting this show. I'm Tony from Blossom. <laughs> <laughs> great reference. Uh hopefully enough of our audience gets that. All right, we don't need to spend enough time on that. We're being silly. You know, obviously everybody makes mistakes, but there seems to be a pattern to the the kind of mistakes that are happening on one side here. But uh so we, we also have the Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award, and uh, I've got some bad news for Rubio. Uh, he's got some competition for the Majority 54 EGOT because Vice President Pence has now picked up his second award. Uh, and as background, last week the CDC announced that it was delaying the additional reopening guidance for schools, at least until the end of the month, although I wouldn't count on it coming out at the end of the month. And Pence, who's like the supposed head of the coronavirus response for this administration, says, quote, he doesn't want the CDC guidance to be a reason why people don't reopen their schools. Now, I think that's precisely what the CDC guidance is meant for. But uh, just to explain to listeners who may be confused, this is probably our most brazen winner of the award because Pence didn't tell a lie. He's actually in plain sight saying, here's this body of evidence, uh, and I'm just going to tell you straight up, we're going to ignore this body of evidence. When we take ourselves out of trying to win the Twitter primary, right, and we're talking to people around kitchen tables, you can say one of two things. I mean, you know that's crazy. Or, listen, you know that's not right. If the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control is saying, hey, listen, you know, we we need to chill a little bit, then you have to wonder why Mike Pence is rejecting that, openly rejecting that. And you got to remember, it's kind of like when we were saying back when uh, when you went off to war, Jason, you know, how many politicians are sending their kids into this? You know, Mike Pence isn't sending his kids to PS2 in Brooklyn, New York, you know? So you have to ask yourself, why does he want you to send your kids to, you know, licking public schools in licking Missouri when literally nothing has changed since schools shut down? that would allow it to be done in a biologically, scientifically safe environment. So that's one of the distinguishing traits of this administration is that they're not very hard to find. There's not a lot of subtlety and nuance here. Uh, Well, Don, we have a segment that we call Midlife Crisis Corner, uh, and this is where we share some tips about fitness, sleep, nutrition, sanity, uh, Etc. I got myself in a lot of trouble last week with Stacey Abrams here, so I'm going to be extremely brief. Jason, what do we have this week? Uh, this week, and I think this is like a, a midlife crisis sort of thing. I decided this week, I was like, you know, I think I'd like to grow my beard back out. And I made that known to my spouse, 
who is not a big fan of my beard when it when it's present and she was a little on the fence so i immediately took to social media and put it to a public vote and in doing that like 6,000 people voted, 56% of people said I should grow out a beard, so now I get to. So I guess my midlife crisis tip is if you can take it to a public vote, usually it's going to be pro-beard. And uh, my wife sort of said, all right, you know, it's fine for like a few weeks since the people demand it. Yeah, man, uh, listen, you know, I voted. I certainly voted on you to bring the beard back. <laughs> um, I did not know that you had already taken the most important poll Um so you, I really don't have a lot of sympathy. You know better than that. You know, um, I don't know why you would poll the public after Diana told your ass no. Um, listen, man, I wear a beard because my lady likes it. That's the end of that discussion, you know? Uh, and so if yours don't like it, uh, your house is far more important than the Twitter primary, man. You know, you're a guest on this podcast. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we've now negotiated this beard will last a, a very limited amount of time. True is pro beard. I mean, it's a real thing in the house. Well, Dom, what do you have for us? You know, I take most of my calls on walks, and I think that's what's keeping me sane. I wonder why I didn't take my calls walking prior to quarantine. Uh, so perhaps if that's some type of midlife revelation, then, uh, then that's for the best. But I think I, like many other people, I'm kind of running out of stuff to add. I've used my best material. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know what I don't know what we're doing here. man. this is insane. I do know that the lack of leadership from the top doesn't really give me a whole lot of faith that it's about to be over anytime soon. Uh, so I hate to be the deliverer of the macabre message to uh, the 54ers. But, Joe, I think we're in for the long haul, and I think that uh, it has something to do with the lack of unified vision of leadership coming from the beginning here. Well, uh, I'll share mine quickly. Uh, I yes, please bring us back about from that very dark yeah, I'll, I'll try to bring us back. Uh, I previously talked about journaling, and uh, one thing I've added to my journaling, I heard an interview recently with Hugh Jackman. Uh, he described how he, when he journals, he writes out at the beginning of the day what his ideal day would be. And then at the end of the day, he scores it. Uh, and so I've been doing that uh, for a little while now. And it's revealing. And it makes you think about your time a lot differently. Um, and so I, I find it a, a super useful exercise and very sobering. That's a great idea. I'm going to start doing that with That's very kids. solid. I don't need another thing that I'm not going to meet up to, though. Right. I got to <laughs> I currently have, well, I a think... lot of, I have a lot of ideals in my life that I fall short of. Like, I don't need another thing, man. Being Ravi's friend, being Ravi's friend gives you no shortage of new ideas that you can't live right. up to. <laughs> Self-improvement guru. All right. Uh, to listeners, just to note that we appreciate all of the voicemails that you're sending in. Uh, we're not going to have time this week to go through uh, any of your mailbag questions, we just want to say thank you for sending them in. Continue to send them in. And in our show notes, we, we will provide the information about how you can call in and remind you of that number. But uh, we have one final segment. Uh, we call it Grab an Oar. It's where we leave our listeners with action. Uh, Don, given that uh, house rules or that uh, as our special guest, you get to give us a call to action. What do you have for us? The first Grab an Oar is to... Uh, the powers that be, whoever they are, in democratic politics, to the Democratic Party. Treat black people like persuasion voters, uh, as opposed to just 
voters that you know are already going to be with you. And treat us like somebody that you have to persuade to come out to vote and come out to vote democratically. I see so much energy being put into that centrist three to five percent of voters, um, many of whom we've already lost. Uh, a lot of whom are going to be with Biden this cycle, but are just going to go right back to the Republican side. Treat black folks like persuasion voters. You're not persuading me to vote Democratic or Republican. You're persuading me to come out and participate in the process. One thing that we always have to remember from both sides is that the couch is always on the ballot. So you have to give me something to vote for. Uh, you know, we, 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 we're not excited about coming out and voting for these kind of centrist milk toast, won't take a position on anything and frankly spend most of their time pandering to the right. You know, that's not really compelling and exciting to me. And we need compelling and exciting if we're going to tick up African-American or really any marginalized groups participation to offset the voter suppression stuff that we know is an active part of Republican electoral culture at this point. Uh, to the average citizen, normal guy, Joe Sixpack, like myself and Uncle Sal, your grabbing oar is to understand that your job is not done just by voting. You need to get 10 other people to vote. If you're not happy with the state of our union right now, if you think, you know, the classic poll question is the country on the right track or the wrong track. If you think this country is on the wrong track. And I know that at least 54% of Americans probably concur that this country is on the wrong track right now. Of course, you know your job is to vote, but that's not enough. Your job is to vote and to get 10 people to vote, but not just 10 people who you knew were going to already come out. Now, you need to get 10 people whose participation was probably marginal. It's getting them to come out, participate in local elections coming up in August, as well as for the big show in November. Don, thank you for joining us. This was amazing. Hey, my brother, man. Thank you for having me, JK. Thank you, Robin. Really appreciate it, man. Of course. Let me plug everybody's social media handles. I'm always at Jason Kander on everything but TikTok. Uh, Ravi is what? At Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter. What's your Instagram? Same. Same thing. Okay. So all sorts of great. You can see him doing, you know, working out at a place where you got to climb a ladder. I saw that this week just to do the workout. <laughs> and uh, Don, I know on Twitter you're at DCSTL. What's your Instagram? D Calloway on Instagram. DCSTL on Twitter. At, I think, Don Calloway on Medium. All right. And look. Give, give everybody a follow. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. With that, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.